If you'd open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. First Corinthians chapter three, let's bow for prayer. Father, as always, we come and we ask that you bless our time in your word. You've already blessed us, Father, with giving us your word and ensuring that we would have it. We thank you, Lord, for the ability to be able to read it and to think about it. We ask, Lord, that you would aid us as we seek to understand, as we seek, Father, to apply these things to the way that we live. We pray, Lord, you grant us the ability to understand you better to have a clear understanding of life. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Again, it reads, Do you not know that you are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwells in you? And if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. One of the main things I wanted to point out to you last week as we went through this is to... Make sure we remember, I guess you would say, the context of what it is that we're reading. Because Paul does later on talk about the fact that the individual is indwelt by the Spirit and that we are the temple of God. Here, the emphasis is on us as a group, as a body of believers, as as the body of believers gather, that is a temple. God dwells here among us. And the emphasis here is on the church. So the idea then is that God's activity in the world has really moved from a sacred building into a sacred body of believers. Remember, we've mentioned before about God dwelling in the tabernacle and God dwelling in the temple, and now we make up the temple. So it's no longer a certain geographic location like in in Israel. Uh, It is not in any particular place where it's kind of located. The idea is that wherever believers are gathered, the Spirit of God is there. that That is the temple. That is the dwelling place of God himself. And we pointed out what it says in 1 Corinthians 14, which we'll get to probably uh, later in the year. Uh, and that is that uh, the idea is when we gather to worship, that if the uninformed or the non-believer comes in and gathers with us, uh, by our conduct, by our worship, uh, they should come to the conclusion that God is here. Uh, it is one of those evidences of God. Uh, we, don't, we would not normally use that in an argument with an atheist over how we know that God exists. Of course, I'm not sure that those kind of arguments are really uh, of any great value to the atheist anyway. It's of great value to us because I think it encourages us in our faith. But the point is, is that there is this idea that God really does exist. Remember that every single person who's ever been born, every person who's alive today, and every person who will be born already knows intuitively that God exists. They know that. And they spend their time seeking to suppress that information or that knowledge. So then when the non-believer, if the non-believer comes and visits us, remember that when we gather together as believers to worship God, that church is, is for and church is designed for believers. Non-believers are welcome, but it's for believers. Right? So that's why we don't design what we do uh, for non-believers or to cater to them in any way. It's for us to worship God. But again, the non-believer is welcome to come. And what should take place is, is that that knowledge that he is suppressing, it should be kind of irritated, it should be stimulated, because he knows that God exists. And when he, when he sees how we are, when, when, when the non-believer sees how we interact with each other, how we worship on the Lord, 
his mind begins to move in that direction and may hopefully in the end say that God is truly among us. So again, Paul tells us that we are the dwelling place of God. So when it comes to worship, the idea then of worship is not, worship is not something that only takes place, for example, on a Sunday morning. We do worship God when we gather together on a Sunday morning, but this is not the only time that we worship. Worship in the Bible really is a verb, and it is not something that you necessarily feel. There may be emotions that accompany when we worship God from time to time, but it's not based on how we feel. Uh, worship is not that at all. Worship is always something we do in response to what God has done in your life. So what, what's supposed to happen is, as believers, our life is really to be a life of worship. So again, that's not the idea that you, know, you're, you walk around and your, your head, so to speak, is in the, in the clouds and you're only humming hymns and you know, you're kind of this, kind of like a monk living among the people and you're always praying. You live your life. You live the life that God has given you. You fulfill the responsibilities that God has given you. But we do so in a very different way. We are motivated by God to do so in a way that honors him. So when we seek uh, to live a life that is honest, when we seek to live a life that is caring, when we seek to live a life that is holy, all of that is done, all of that is an act of worship. And we're doing that in response to all that God has done for us. And so uh, what then is supposed to happen then on a Sunday is, uh, because that's the time that we've chosen to worship, is that we have been living our lives in, in, in acts of worship all throughout the week as individuals. And now all of us come and gather together, a group of individuals who've been worshiping already, we now come together and we worship together. We celebrate together. We seek to honor the Lord together because of what God has done for us and what God has done in us. So again, the idea is, is that there are many people that you meet that they will not see you at church, but they should see you in your life as a place where God resides. Now, they're not going to come to that conclusion the very first time they, they meet you. Again, it's not that we glow in the dark. You know, there's none of those types of things. Um, I do think that there is uh, a, a segment of Christianity that, that they don't really think you glow in the dark, but they think there's something going on. Um, I remember once I was, I was at the Lake Mare. I was there to walk, which is not my favorite thing to do because um, I was walking for no other reason than to burn calories, and I just really do not like doing that. Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I had uh, completed a, a lap, and I was going to have to do another one, and this individual came up to me, and he said, aren't you a pastor? Which either means he was in jail when I was a chaplain, or maybe he saw me when we used to be on TV or something, and I said yes. And then he said, I knew it. He says, I could just tell by looking at you. And I'm in sweatpants, tennis shoes, and a raggedy shirt. And, uh, you know, I'm not exactly smiling because I'm not happy to be there. And I'm like, well, praise the Lord. <laughs> I don't... I, you know, but apparently, according to him, he could, he could tell by looking at me. Um, I think it had more to do with memory than anything else. Uh, but we want to make sure that we understand that when it comes to this, that the idea is that, that people will see God in the way we behave, in the way we act, our character is to come through. Uh, and so there are individuals then who are not going to come here and, I guess you would say, in a sense, experience God or, or see God as we interact with each other. But we carry this with us wherever we go. And the idea is that we want to live a life that does point to God. 
And the longer that we know an individual, uh, there should be a, a growing uh, percentage, a greater chance that an individual will come to understand what it is that makes us tick. And what it should be is, even though they may not understand it, what it should be is has something to do with either church, the Bible, or Jesus Christ, or all three. We want them to come to that conclusion. They should see us as a person in which God resides. And that is our purpose in, in life that we live. Again, he says in verse 16, and he's asking a rhetorical question. In fact, I believe he asked the question where he expects them to be able to say yes to this question. Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? The word dwells, as used there, means house or residence. The idea is that God has taken up residence within your life. God has taken up residence within our life. Uh, it is, in the Greek language, is what you call the present active indicative, which simply means this that he continuously dwells in our life. He continuously dwells among us. And that is something that we need to think about at times, is we need to think about, we need, we need to make ourselves cognizant, aware of the fact that God is himself present with us. And, and we live accordingly. Uh, the idea is, is, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, I know I did, uh, growing up in my household when I was 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, um, I was... Even if I was doing nothing wrong, I was always aware when my dad was around. And that usually helped me make better decisions. Because if I wasn't aware of my dad being around, I was prone to make some bad decisions. Either because I was just being foolish, uh, which was a lot of it, um, maybe just, just doing something dumb. Uh, but the idea was is that when, when my dad was present, when I was aware of my dad's presence, it had an impact on my life. The idea then is that that it is to have an impact in our life. It's not that we are under the scrutiny of, of a God who hates us. God loves us and cares for us deeply. But God also has, there's a sense of expectation that, that we live in a particular way, that, that we pursue holiness, that we, we live in a way that honors him. That, that's not, that God's presence in our life is not, you know, he's not a cosmic killjoy where he's trying to ruin your life. He wants us to have a life that is filled with joy, with happiness. He wants us to like being here, not just together in church. He wants, us, he wants you to like your life. Your life is a gift from him. And even though we've done a lot of things to kind of ruin it, uh, you know, he's there to help us, to be able to endure the consequences of bad decisions. He's there to, to be a help for us in our time of need. And so God wants us to enjoy the life that he's given us. And so it's not a bad thing or a negative thing for us to have this awareness that we are a dwelling place of God. So when it comes to all of this, what we need to recognize is that this is just something that you just have to take this home and just understand it. Nothing's going to change this. We are the dwelling place of God, individually and collectively, period. He's taken up residence in our life, uh, period. And because the Holy Spirit has taken up residence in our life, that is proof of our holiness before God. Let me read to you verse 17. We're going to read it to you several times from different translations, uh, just so we can kind of get the gist of, of where he's going with this. Verse 17, Paul writes, If anyone defiles the temple of God... So again, let me just remind you of the context. Even though there is application to us as individuals, because we are the temple of the Holy Spirit... He is speaking primarily to the body of believers that have gathered together. All right? So the focus is on the church. So if anyone defiles the temple of God, 
God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. Now that's from the New King James. In the English Standard Version, it reads, If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. In the uh, Christian Standard Version, If anyone ruins God's sanctuary, God will ruin him. For God's sanctuary is holy, and that is what you are. And then in the Amplified, and they actually did a pretty good job, I think, in helping us to grasp what he's talking about here in the Amplified. And it reads this way. If anyone does hurt to God's temple or corrupts it with false doctrines or destroys it, God will do hurt to him and bring him to the corruption of death and destroy him. For the temple of God is holy. It is sacred to him. And that temple, you, the believing church, and its individual believers are. And so God is very concerned about how the church is or the state of the church He is very concerned about how we act as believers when we are gathered together. And here the warning is given that if anyone is seeking to corrupt it in any way, God is going to deal with that individual. God is is, uh, specifically going to uh, deal with disciplining or punishing that individual. Remember, as we've already mentioned, he's going to get into some other problems later. But he's already talked about this idea how they've, they've kind of promoted division among themselves by, by identifying with different individual teachers and saying, you know, they were, again, looking for some kind of superiority. You know, well, I'm, you know, I was converted into Paul's ministry, and so I, I follow Paul. And someone else says, no, I, you know, Apollos was so eloquent, I, I, I follow Apollos, and I was converted. And so they were trying to identify in that way, and so they were dividing themselves uh, in that way, and, and that, was, that was bringing a, a corrupting nature, a corrupting attitude towards the church. And so Paul's very concerned about that. He doesn't want that to be going on. There's a lot of corrupting things that are going on in this church, and that's just one of them. So here he does say specifically that he's going to deal with an individual. Now when he says here that uh, for, for the temple of God is holy, remember that holiness does not mean perfection when it comes to us. When it comes to God, yes. But when it comes to us, no. Uh, we, we are very familiar with the fact that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. You, you could even say, to a degree, that because of that, the holiness of God is imputed. So I'm not perfect. There's, remember, there's this, uh, when it comes to our holiness, there's what we might call a positional holiness. I have been set apart by God. That's, that's our position. That's not going to change. You've been set apart. We are God's people. Um, there's also the uh, progressive aspect or the personal aspect of holiness, that because I, I've been made holy by God or declared holy by God, I now need, I need to begin to pursue holiness in every aspect of my life and, and live up to what it is that God has done for me. So again, the word holy here means for us is that we have been set apart. We've been, we have been put in a class all by ourselves. Out of all of humanity, we are in a class by ourselves. That is why it matters so much how we interact with each other. Because God seeks to use us in the same way that he sought to use the nation of Israel as a display of his majesty and of his greatness. What he wants is there to be a community, a family of believers that behave in such a unique way when it comes to this, compared to the sinfulness of man, that man is in a sense dumbstruck by what he sees. That he, he can't help but notice what he sees. 
that he sees the way that we care for each other, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. That we take every aspect of life very seriously, and though unrelated, humanly speaking, we act as if we are very deeply connected and related, uh, um, humanly speaking. We, We act that way. And so it should cause the individuals to kind of scratch their head. Not that they're always going to respond by that. Maybe their response would be one of, wow, I wish, I wish I could be a part of that community. And many individuals aren't going to admit that in that way. But remember that uh, we see this all of the time. There's many different articles written about this. There's, there's a lot of talk about this. And that is that, that in the society we live in today, though it appears and people talk about having a greater connection with other people more than any other time in history, we are actually much more isolated than any other time in history. And as a result of that, there's an increasing amount of loneliness and all of the different issues that come along with loneliness. Uh, what normally comes along with loneliness is, is uh, deep and lasting sadness or depression, uh, a growth in anxiety, uh, a, uh, an increase in paranoia, uh, an increase of being you know, distrustful of other people. Um, uh, there's just a lot of different types of things that are going on uh, that, that, that are the result of the fact that we are more and more isolated from each other, even though we're still together. Uh, and so we, we, we need to then, in a sense, have a greater awareness of that so that to a much greater degree, we can display the greatness of God, what we possess as believers. Uh, because again, remember, you do not know what's going on inside of the mind of a person. We do to a degree because people are people. And uh, we should never be surprised by what we hear, about what people are going on. But that's why we need to be much more in tune with our society. We need to be much more in tune with those at work. There are individuals that you see on a daily basis, whether it's at work um, or as you get involved in various things that you're interested in. There are, there are people that you meet on a regular basis that are in very desperate situations. You can't tell on the outside what's going on. But on the inside, they're dying. On the inside, they, they are, they're screaming for help. On the inside, there, there may be a deep, uh, a deep sadness or depression. There may be all kinds of things that are happening. And they're, they're putting on that, that facade. They're, they're kind of carrying on as if everything is, is going well. And we need to ask the Lord to give to us um, wisdom and insight, the ability to, to be able to see through that. Now, that doesn't mean that we're going to magically be able to read people. I do think that as we become more in tune people, we will begin to pick up on some of those things. But there'll be other times when you still won't be able to pick up on it. But because we will tend to be individuals who prefer to interact with other people, when you interact with them, that kind of gives opportunity, perhaps, for something to begin to show. Because as you get to know them, you will be able to, you'll, better be able to, you'll be able to better read their body language, so to speak. In other words, if I, if, I just, if I met Sean for the first time, I'd never be able to know what's going on in his life by body language. But be, through the years, as we've gotten to know each other, there's, there, are, there are things, I may not even be able to describe them, but there'd be things that I'll notice that are just all of a sudden different. That's why sometimes individuals you know well may come up to you and say, is everything okay? And you go, yeah, everything's okay. Why are you asking me that? As you try to hide because things aren't Okay. Uh, but what happens is they've picked up on some things, and it's body language, and it may be very subtle uh, when it comes to this. So we need, as believers, to be that kind of individu- in, uh, those kind of individuals. Why? Because God dwells in us, and we carry the message of hope that the world needs. And so when, when an individual comes among us who's, who's not a part of our group, 
And you can easily tell at times when someone's kind of like an outsider in whatever way, whether they're just kind of acting awkward or unsure. That's why it's so important that we reach out. Because the re- remember what we said, I said it four or five times last week, the reputation of Christ is what's at stake. That's ex- what, what would Jesus do? He would, at that, he would reach out to that individual. It doesn't mean you suddenly come on too strong and become their best buddy, because that looks really weird. It looks like you want something, you want to sell something to them. But, but we need to use the personalities and the gifts that God has given to us, and part of the gifts that God has given us is the relationships that we have with each other. And bring that individual into that group. And perhaps begin to minister to them in ways that we had not thought of. So again, out of all of humanity, we need to remember that we are in a class all by ourselves. Because the Spirit of God has taken up residence in our heart. He has separated us for himself, or unto himself, for his purposes. Therefore, we have been made holy as individuals and again collectively. And his living in our life is proof of that. And again, he says at the end of the verse, and that is what you are. You are holy because God is holy and lives in you and has separated you unto himself and made you holy. Because we are holy in this way, because we've been set apart by God, we should strive to be holy in our living. Strive to be holy in our attitudes. Strive to be holy in the way that we treat other people and the way we act. So again, he lives in us. He separated us unto himself. He enables us... um, to, uh, to now live separate unto him for the building, which he would go back to what he talks about, building on the foundation, the building of the church, so that the building can be built correctly. So again, we are the dwelling place of God. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And thirdly, Paul says, there are those who seek to defile the, the, the dwelling of God. And again, basically what God is saying is, through Paul, don't mess with my people. It goes right back to the Old Testament where, where God told the children of Israel, you know, here, here's my law, here's my covenant I make with you, and I, I'm going to be there for you, and whoever messes with you, I'm going to take care of it. And, and we know that as they lived in obedience to what he said, that, they were, that, that, that their enemies didn't bother them. Everything was going well. Yet when they were moving into idolatry and disobedience, God would allow their enemies to come in. It didn't matter how big or small the Israeli army was, if they were in tune with God, things went well. When they were living in disobedience, things didn't go well. And that's true for us as well. Again, verse 17. If anyone defiles, and some translations say they have the word destroy, the temple. The, word, the way we use the word destroy today is probably not the best translation because we, th- we think of it differently than we would the word defile. I think defile is a much better word. But again, if, if anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, which temple, again, you are. Now, some people, when they, when they just kind of read through this, uh, not very many anymore, but a few have said, well, this is clearly talking about suicide. You know, I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of God. And if you destroy it, if you destroy it by self-murder, then this is what God's going to destroy you. And that's how some people have understood that. What we need to re- realize, remember, is that if a Christian is a Christian, even suicide does not cause you to commit the unpardonable sin. And there's always confusion about that. We'll make this really simple. Number one, the only person to mention an unpardonable sin is Jesus himself. And he didn't say that it was suicide. So you just can't come to that conclusion, unless you're going to disagree with Jesus, that suicide is the unpardonable sin. But you have another problem. If suicide is the unpardonable sin... What does that say about the cross of Jesus Christ? Remember, we believe that Jesus died for all sin. 
all of my sin. He paid the punishment for all of my sin, the penalty for all of my sin. Was there one sin that was excluded from that? Well, it's not recorded in the Bible. In fact, most of us would even agree, and we've heard messages about the fact that when he said it is finished, it meant exactly that. When we say that Jesus is our propitiation, that means he fully satisfied the wrath of God towards our sin. And for years, for decades, even those who did not believe that suicide was uh, the unpardonable sin, there was always kind of fear and trepidation that somehow what what we shouldn't really tell people. Because somehow it was the fear that it was the unpardonable sin that would keep them in check. Because if somehow everyone's going to run out and commit suicide if, if they find out that it's not the unpardonable sin. We should never be afraid of truth, ever. And suicide has always been a, a very real problem in every society. But you don't address that by trying to control people through fear. Because that's what that is. Don't commit suicide because if you do, you know you won't be forgiven. You die and go to hell. Okay, that's not how you... That's not how you handle that. So for the believer, though it may be uncomfortable for us to talk about, suicide is not the unpardonable sin. Um, I do think it's rare for believers to to, uh, commit suicide, but it does happen. We know that it happens. And if that individual is a true believer, then they are in heaven. And we're not suggesting it's a good thing to do. I think it's still wrong. It's still a sin. Uh, Some have tried to use the logic stating that the reason why uh, suicide is... um, the unpardonable sin is because if you commit self-murder, which is a term that's often used, that you clearly cannot ask God to forgive you of your sin. And so therefore, um, that's why you go to hell. Well, time out. It goes back to our understanding of forgiveness. We know as believers that all of our sin, past, present, and future, has already been forgiven. I am not asking God when I pray and ask God to forgive me. I'm not asking God to forgive me so I can be his child again. I've never lost that status. It's because I am his child. It has to do with the relationship that we have. And if that logic was to hold true, meaning that because you did not, because you could not, but you did not ask God to forgive you for your sin when you died, that is the reason why you then went to hell then you just expanded the unpardonable sin. Because how many people have died without confessing all of their sin? Many people have died. There's all kinds of sin that we may have committed, even to the point of death that we haven't. So our salvation is not dependent upon us making sure that we're always got the slate clean with God. God's taking care of that. That's the beauty of the gospel. And so we need to make sure that when we look at this that we don't understand this as being uh, a case against suicide. It has nothing to do with that. The word defile here means, is a word that means to waste away or to corrupt. The idea is that you take something from one state and it goes to another state that is worse than it was before. And so we have to ask the question, if any man defiles the temple, who is this man? Who's doing this? Well, it could be anyone. It's lots of people. It could be lost people, both inside the church or outside the church, who are doing that. It may be the false doctrine of permissiveness or a false doctrine of worldliness. It could be individuals who say, oh, you can do this. Everybody's doing this. Or, or those who want to, you know, the health and wealth uh, prosperity kind of teachers, you know, where they've corrupted um, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is corrupting the church. So it's not always bringing in overt sin, though that does take place, but it, but it can be through... Uh, misleading doctrines. The idea that where we begin to cause damage to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, and it is definitely can be also that which brings worldliness into it. 
So if it pulls you away from your walk in faith and your walk in truth and leads you into error, then you need to be careful if you are that individual because God says he's marking you out. And what he's going to do is he's going to bring destruction on you. In fact, when you look at 17 again, again the warning, if any man destroys the temple of God or corrupts or defies it, God will destroy him. So the point is, is that at some time in the future, God is going to do the same thing to you. And the word destroy that's used there, God will destroy him, again means to corrupt, it means to defile or to bring to a worsened state. So again, it is this person, it's not his works that's going to be corrupted, it's that person that's going to be corrupted, or that person to be brought into a worse state. It doesn't give us the details as to what that is. What he's telling us, though, is that God is very concerned about how we conduct ourselves within the church, how we treat each other, what it is that we are doing, how we are living, what it is that we are teaching. And God is, is so concerned what happens in the church, or you would even say in the churches of all the local churches, that he is marking out those individuals who are bringing any kind of a corrupting influence on that. So, so even though it can be a very serious warning to false teachers, which we also have in Second Peter, it's not limited to just those who are in some kind of teaching position. It's to every single one of us. And God is basically saying payday is coming and there's going to be a judgment. So again, when he asks the question, do you not know, believers should recognize that they are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in them. Just as the name of God lived in Solomon's temple, the Holy Spirit lives in the New Testament temple, which is the body of believers that have gathered in the name of Jesus. Because of the Holy Spirit's dwelling, the leaders of the church, and that would be all the leaders, not just the pastor or what have you, all the leaders should be very, very careful. Because if we do things that are destroying the temple, if we are doing things that are harming by leading through arrogance, by leading through human pretense, any of those things, that, that brings a corrupting nature, a defilement on the church. God is going to bring that on that individual. And why is that judgment so severe? Because the temple of God is sacred. The church at Corinth, which had been really corrupted by sin, was sacred to God. We can say Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church is sacred to God. We're not the only church, so we're not saying that. But we need to think about that in this way. That what we do here, what we do in the name of Jesus, it's sacred. And God is very concerned as to how we pull that off. Because again, as we said before, it is Christ's reputation that is at stake. And if it's Christ's reputation that's at stake, that means the gospel is at stake. The clarity of the gospel is at stake. The power of the gospel is at stake. Why we exist is at stake. And God is not going to allow that to be corrupted. Because again, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, again, we pray that you would help us to grasp the intent of Paul here and what it is that he's seeking to to communicate. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to think often about the fact that we are the dwelling place of God. In particular, Father, as a church, that as we gather together, as we do anything together, whether it's worship, whether it's eating, whether it's doing a mission project, whatever it happens to be, Father, what we do as a body, we do as that which is the dwelling place of God. And we pray, Lord, that we would view it in the same way that Christ views the church, that we would view the church as Christ views his body, 
And that, Father, we would recognize it for what it is. That, Father, this would have an impact on us in the way that we think and the way that we live. We pray, Lord, that you would change us by your Spirit through this truth. That, Father, we may once again live lives both individually and corporately that point to the greatness of Jesus Christ, to the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that exclaims what it is that your love can do for a community of people. We pray, Lord, that others would become jealous of what we have. Not, Lord, because we want to stand back in our arrogance and stick our thumbs in our, in our puffy chest and say, look at how others are jealous of us. But, Father, because we, we want them to be jealous that they will yearn to have what we have, that, Father, we may share that with them, that we may give that to them, that they may, too, be a part of what we possess. Father, again, what we have is because of your greatness and your goodness, and we are so thankful for that. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to celebrate through the rest of this day what we have in Christ and truly enjoy the life that you've given to us, regardless of the circumstances that we find ourselves in. As always, we do thank you. We do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.